Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Glad you're here this morning. Uh, we're going to look at the amazing book of Romans. Romans, God's power to transform anyone. Anyone. D.L. Moody once said, There are many of us who are willing to do great things for the Lord. But few of us are willing to do little things. Today we're going to talk about doing the little things. Doing the little things faithfully for the Lord. If you'll allow me for just a minute, um, I want to talk about my grandparents, okay? My, my grandparents, uh, as I was going through this lesson, I just so was thinking about them, and this list here in Romans chapter 12 with so many wonderful traits. My grandparents were great examples of doing just little things for the Lord, and I watched them as I grew up. My grandfather on one side, my dad's side, was a pastor, uh, but first, before he was a pastor, he was... He lived the first part of his life for the devil, and uh, God saved him, and he became a pastor, uh, started several churches on the West Coast. Grandma was just an amazing uh, companion to him, and an amazing woman of God. They were people-loving saints for many years, and they lived humbly, really, but they stayed faithful to the Lord. The, just as I watched them as a little kid, just looking up to them. Their entire life just staying faithful, staying faithful, and doing the little things. I will miss them deeply. I still do. My other grandparents on my mom's side are heroes, are my heroes also. Grandpa Yetter was a second generation Christian, and, and he remained faithful in his life. He walked with the Lord even from a child, grew up in the church, and then lived for the Lord his entire life. His, his wife, my grandma, was the same way. They lived their lives faithfully, raised two kids who loved the Lord. Grandpa worked in public education, and then he, when he retired, he became the pastor of a little tiny little church that couldn't afford to pay a pastor. And, and, uh, but then, then he came here and taught our senior citizen class for a while until he couldn't do that anymore. But he and Grandma were faithful all the way to the end, um, just doing the little things. The longer I live, those are the kinds of people that impress me. Those are the kind of people that I'm amazed by. You can, you can have all the flashy celebrity Christian stuff. I really don't give a rip about that stuff. Uh, doing the little things over a long period and being faithful, that is the real deal. That is the real deal. Here we are in Romans chapter 12. And after laying out perhaps the greatest treatise on salvation theology that's ever been written in the history of mankind, Paul now is going to list... A powerful, he gives this powerful list of practical do's and don'ts. These are ways to live our lives long term in light of the fact that Christ has saved us. He says, Romans chapter 1 through 11, he described this amazing salvation that, that God has given to us. Again, salvation is not something that we earn and we go after and we attain ourselves. It is this miraculous thing that God puts inside of us. Justification is something that he gives because we just exercise faith and put our faith in Him. By grace, through faith. But once that happens, then what? Then what? Once your sins have been washed away, then what? And that's where Romans 12 comes in. He says, I 
beseech you by the mercies of God. He kind of encapsulates all of Romans 1 through 11 with that one phrase, the phrase, the mercies of God. I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies now a living sacrifice. And so now there, there it is. He lays it out for us. We present our bodies and every member of our body as a, as a living sacrifice. And then he goes on to tell us how to do that. How do we do that? How do we start living this life as a living sacrifice? And it's just this long list of incredible character traits that's, that every Christian should have. <clears throat> and so, as we look at this chapter and the rest of the book, really, in Romans... What we're seeing is how our doctrine needs to turn into doing. And or as one pastor put it, if your theology is not your biography, then your theology is worthless. <laughs> so in chapter 12, Paul gives these commands from God about everyday issues that you and I are going to deal with. Every Christian is going to deal with this, these things from time to time. One more thing before we launch into these next few. I think it's important to remember right here that these are more than just character qualities. Nice little character qualities we might teach our kids. No, these are commands, and they are coming from the God of heaven. Amen. They are His words to us on how Christians should live. So here we are, and we're going to continue on. We started it last week. We're looking at what I'm calling the difference-making habits of highly effective Christians. And so let's carry on from last week. Number six, and that is get some enthusiasm and burn for the Lord. Get some enthusiasm and burn for the Lord. Look at what Paul says here in verse 11. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Okay, so the word slothful there means lazy, slow-moving, sluggish, lethargic. The word business there is not talking about our jobs and careers, although this is that's pretty good principle as well. But this word in Greek means diligence, zeal, earnestness, enthusiasm. Literally, the phrase is, don't be lazy in your zeal, or don't lag in your enthusiasm. Fervent, the word fervent there in Greek means to boil with heat. <clears throat> so, when we look at this verse, we could say, don't be lazy in your enthusiasm, but burning in your passion. Don't be lazy in your enthusiasm, but burning in your passion. The idea here is pretty obvious. Christians should not serve the Lord with a complacent or a lackadaisical attitude. Amen. God is commanding us to be enthusiastic and passionate as we serve the Lord. Live life with passion. You're a believer. You have a job to do. People are on their way to hell. Jesus says to be passionate. As the old preachers used to say, you can burn out, but don't rust out. <laughs> you know, it's sad to me when Christians get too mature for enthusiasm. <clears throat> I mentioned my grandpa there a few minutes ago. I remember watching my pastor grandpa. He would, even in his 70s, he always impressed me. When he would go up to preach, I would watch him a few times, spend sometimes some summers with him. And when he would run, when he'd go up to the up the steps to go preach, he would run up the steps at 70, over 70 years old. Like he couldn't wait to talk about Jesus. You know, I want that enthusiasm. Uh, none of us should get too old to be enthusiastic or passionate for the Lord. Why does Paul, now think about this, why does Paul have to even say this to the Christians? 
Why does he even have to say this back to them back then and to us really now? It's because the human natural drift is into comfort. And it's into laziness. That's who we are. But the problem with lazy Christians is that they are fruitless Christians. Enthusiasm bears fruit. Enthusiasm for the Lord has a profound effect on the people around us. One of my jobs when I was younger was a service writer for a, a full-service car wash. And so it was my job to upsell every single car that came in. So you came in for a wash. I, you know, I, the basic uh, thing we heard was, I just want the regular wash. You know, So my job was to say, no, you don't want the regular wash. We have a great deal on much better wash, and you're going to love it. We'll get some armor all on those tires, get some wax on that car, whatever. So I was supposed to convince them that their car would, would be amazing if they just listened to me. Um, we still yeah. need you. <laughs> so they had these computerized reports about on how well we did because we were, uh, we were paid uh, uh, commissions on how much we could upsell. So there's a computerized report showing the bosses how well we did. If you could average... $3 over the regular wash, people spending $3 at least over the regular wash, then you weren't even trying. If you could average anything over $5 per car, you were doing great. If you got six or seven, you're legendary. You know, you get your, you get your name on the wall. So being there for several years, I, you know, I learned by experiment something very clear. This is where, it's, this is where it all came to, uh, came to my head, where I finally understood the value of enthusiasm. Um, I could tell that my attitude as I went to work and what I did made a huge difference in my average. Um, there were days that we had these sales incentives, you know, cash bonuses if you hit certain numbers. And it was hard, it, I think, going into it to build up my enthusiasm about car waxes and tire dressing. But, uh, but I did it on those days. And I learned very quickly I would always sell more when I was enthusiastic as I approached the person's car. The numbers didn't lie, is what I'm telling you. And this is the point, like I said, I learned in life, enthusiasm has a profound effect on the people around us. It just does. It rubs off. Thankfully, now in the ministry, I've never had to work enthusiasm up. I don't. I just read the Bible a little bit, and I get pumped up, and I'm ready to... Ready to talk about the Lord. But the principle is still the same here. Enthusiasm is contagious. I think we draw more people to the Lord in our life through enthusiasm than through misery. <laughs> Don't you think? In our poor worship team, they have a tough job up there. Sometimes they look out and they're up there playing their, 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 uh, their instruments or they're trying to sing and they get very little help with enthusiasm. <laughs> They're trying to, as somebody said, they're lighting a fire on that platform, but there's a bunch of wet wood in the room. <laughs> I told John Craig, you know, uh, when you're up there, remember, when it comes to enthusiasm and being there and trying to help people worship the Lord, you need to be up here so that everybody else comes to at least here. <laughs> if you're here, people might come here. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help our enthusiasm for the Lord rub off on the people around us. Now, they've told me, they've told me, those folks that sing and play up there, that one person with enthusiasm in the audience, so one person that's sitting out there in the congregation, they're just worshiping the Lord, they're just loving the Lord from their heart, just with passion, they'll often, 
the people on platform will often stare at that person to help them be motivated to worship the Lord. And they'll just keep thinking about that person. If that person is loving the Lord, I can do this too. So now think about that. One person out in the congregation who's just with enthusiasm worshiping the Lord can, can actually influence the person on the platform who then in turn can influence hundreds. Amen. An enthusiastic Christian is a more fruitful Christian. I know there are lots of outward forms of enthusiasm, okay? I, and I get it. There, I may, some people may not be the world boisterous kind. I understand that. But live with passion. Live with enthusiasm. Amen. And there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, according to this verse, it looks like there is something wrong with not being enthusiastic. Oh, amen. Just do it. Now, I want to say Paul's not saying to be fake. He is not saying to work this up uh, you know, in just a completely weird way. He's saying to truly get pumped up. Get pumped up for real. If you need to go to the Word of God, if you need to just pray some more, if whatever you need to do, get enthusiastic for the Lord. Let it be real and let it out. But notice real quick where the fervency is to be directed. It says in the last part of that verse, serving the Lord. See, not just when you're preaching or teaching, not just when you're singing, not just when you're working with children, but any opportunity to serve the Lord is a time to be enthusiastic and, to, and a time to give it our all. The key word here and the key phrase, I think, in this passage and the way to stay enthusiastic is the last two words, and that is the Lord. Serve the Lord. This is how we stay enthusiastic. We have to see all of our service as to the Lord. Yeah. I'm doing this for Him. In other words, my focus is on Him. This is a service that I'm doing, and a servant always lives to please his master. It's all about pleasing Jesus. It's all about serving him. That is my purpose for being on this earth. I focus on him, and therefore I can be enthusiastic. I don't focus on the tediousness of the job itself, and I, and I don't focus on whether others are doing their fair share or doing what they're supposed to be doing. I focus on Jesus. And in that case, if, that, if that's the case, I can be fervent in spirit. I don't want to belabor this point here, but I, I, I think this will be helpful if I just mention this one more thing. I think you can apply this verse to, our, to your regular 9-to-5 job as well. Amen. Um, no matter what my career is, ultimately my job is to serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Speaking about work in another place, Paul said in Colossians 3.23, Whatsoever you do, he was specifically talking about work there, Whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not unto men. Yes. That is the theology of work. That's the theology of our careers. Every career is a holy career if you're doing it for the Lord and not unto men. Yes. It, every job has eternal value. When you go to work, that alone is serving the Lord. When you do your job from your heart with passion and integrity... That is serving the Lord. When you're at home, tending your little sheep there in your home, and making, making dinners and doing all of that, that is serving the Lord. We need to live our lives heartily with passion, with hard work, and a servant's attitude that says, Lord, it's all for you. There are many of us who are willing to do great things for the Lord, but few of us are willing to do little things. Keep doing the little things. But along the way... Let's just accept this one truth, and that is that life won't be easy. Amen. Life will not be easy. What do we do when life hurts? 
when the stuff that you're dealing with is so painful and, and lasting so long that you don't, you're, 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 you're beside yourself. Well, here's what highly effective Christians do. Number seven, and that is they rejoice, they persevere, and they pray. They rejoice, they persevere, and they pray. Look at verse 12, what Paul says. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. These are the habits of highly effective Christians. Before we go further here, I want to stop real quick and say that, these, that this verse and verses like this imply that faith is not about ignoring reality. It's not about living in some la-la fairytale land. And it's not about wishful thinking. See, God wants us to face the fact that we might be in a tribulation. You are going to face tribulation. Amen. And you, it will be hard. And it will be horrible. And you will not like it. Be honest about it. This is a bad thing. And bad things happen. But there is a way to handle them and go through it faithfully. So what should a Christian do when life feels unbearably difficult? Then you do, some, you do something that the unbelievers cannot do. And that is we first rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. Now what does this mean? Hope, the word there, of course, means expectation. It's all about the future. Hope is all about the future. About what will be someday and not what is right now. So we hope is fixing our eyes on the future that God has promised. And choosing joy rather than sadness. The future is always bright for the Christian. Always. There's always there are always better days ahead for the Christian. The Bible says in another place, rejoice always. But here in this verse, notice, Paul tells us what to rejoice in. There, rejoice always just tells you you just need to rejoice. But here, he's actually saying what, how you can rejoice. You rejoice in hope. Hope, the expected future. That's why we can rejoice. When you're going through something, it's okay to think about heaven. Here's uh, something, I love this. I love this. Almost every time Johnny Erickson Tata opens her mouth, I'm moved. Amen. She's a quadriplegic, and she said this about, our, about this hope in the future. Here's what she said. I still can hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light and bright and clothed in righteousness, Powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me? Or someone who has cerebral palsy, brain injured, or who has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promised new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. Yes. This is what we have that no one else has. Better days are always ahead for the believer. If you think about it, the term hopeless Christian is an oxymoron. It's impossible for the Christian to be hopeless. We always have hope. Even here on this earth, we can rejoice every single day. Because even if we're going through something, we know three things. God either will remove the trial... 
He will remove us from the trial, or he'll walk with us through the trial. Amen. So no wonder Paul can just say, rejoice. Rejoice in hope. Whatever you're going through, rejoice in hope. A highly effective Christians, they learn to rejoice in hope. Then they are patient in tribulation, through tribulation. This means persevering through the pressures and poundings of life. The word tribulation is the word for pressure. It's the feeling of being in a pressure cooker. But patience is, means endurance or perseverance. Now listen, it is, the, it is enduring the heat of that pressure cooker, knowing that it will yield a good result. So patience is really an act of faith. Endurance is an act of faith. Perseverance is an act of faith. You are bearing this horrible thing because I know that God is working. I know that God is working. And what do these rejoicing and persevering people do while they're going through the tribulation? Well, it says here they pray. They're continuing instant in prayer. The continuing instant means to adhere closely, to give constant attention to. Highly effective Christians go through life's pains and their heartaches in constant state of prayer. In a constant state of prayer. Oh, how I thank the Lord for the gift of prayer. Amen. No matter what is happening, we can always pray. Always. You give me the worst thing you can think of to happen to you. The worst possible thing you could imagine. Prayer is something you can do about it. In fact, when you're going through something in life and when you don't know what to do, I was thinking about this. We have a simple plan laid out for us right here in this verse. I call it, I'm going to call it the 12-12 plan. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice, persevere, and pray. What do you do when you don't know what to do? The 12, 12 plan. <laughs> Rejoice in hope. Persevere through that tribulation in faith. And pray, 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 pray. Some of you may go, be going through a pressure cooker right now. Stick to the 12, 12 plan. You know, put this verse on your refrigerator, on your phone wallpaper, whatever. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What happened when they were in the pressure cooker? Who was there with them? Jesus. 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 Highly effective Christians can rejoice, they can persevere, and they can pray because they know that Jesus is in the fire with them. Now what's another habit of highly effective Christians? Number eight here, I, I see that we share your life and resources with those in need. Share your life and resources with those in need. That's what Christians do. Verse 13. Distributing to the necessity of the saints given to hospitality. Distribute, the word distribute in Greek means to give, to share what you have. I love this command because it's so opposite of the world's way of life. The world is all about getting. Believers need to be all about giving. And praise the Lord, I've seen this among God's people. So, so many times. As I mentioned this a few years ago, but right after COVID and all of that, right in that moment, we didn't know quite what was going to happen. We had more money given to be dispersed to people in need than we had people in need. <laughs> That's highly effective Christianity right there. That's you folks at the home church. And I know the heart of most of the people in here. If you knew that there was a genuine need from someone, then you, then you would want to try to fill it without being asked. I know you would. And that's what distributing to the necessity of the saints is all about. I appreciate that so much. 
The word hospitality there literally means to be fond of guests or to love strangers. The joke, of course, about hospitality is that the definition of hospitality is making people feel at home while secretly wishing they were at home. <laughs> in, in Paul's day, hospitality was extra important, especially for helping the saints. I mean, you're, you're living there, and um, you know Christians would travel from place to place. It would take them a long time to travel from city to city. You're just walking everywhere. And there were no hotels.com. And so uh, Paul is telling them, listen, when people are coming through, have an open-door attitude. Have an open-door attitude. Open your home. Open your life to people. Let them come in. Be willing to share what you have. It seems like such a little thing to say. But it's such a powerful thing. Even today, hospitality is so, so powerful. It's about having a mind that actually thinks about guests and not just looking out for number one. It's about having an openness to new people in your life. It's about being a, an approachable and welcoming person on your face and in your life. We should all work at being hospitable people. I'm sure you're all aware of this, but uh, we should never undervalue or underestimate the value of small acts of hospitality. It's, it's interesting to me. I've, I've thought about this for many years. Uh, it's, it's fascinating the psychology of what happens when someone gives or shows hospitality to someone else and what happens in that other person's heart and in their mind. You know, it's kind of like the old saying, you know, a way to a man's heart is through his stomach, you know. There is, just a, there is just a power in hospitality, especially when people eat together. Um, hospitality has a way, and little acts of hospitality has a way of finding, uh, worming its way into people's hearts and minds. People, those people who serve food around here, I just want to tell you, you do more than you realize to unite this church and to unite the hearts of people around here than you may even realize. Everybody that serves in that way, thank you, thank you, thank you. I heard this true story about the power of meals. There was a Chicago businessman. He called his wife, and he said, "Hun, I'm bringing home a, a visitor. There's a, it's a, he's a foreigner, and, and he's, he needs a place to have dinner tonight, so I'm bringing, I'm bringing him. Is that okay with you? I've done this many times to my wife, and she always, please, just ask me first, please. But I'm happy to do it. At the time, the wife had three children in school, and she had a preschooler, so there were plenty of things for her to do but besides entertaining strangers. But she, she was open, and she said, fine, bring him on. The foreigner was, a, was an important Spanish official, and, and he, after he ate with them that night, he never forgot that dinner. Years later, some friends of that family went to Spain as missionaries. As they were doing their work, their work kind of came to a standstill because of some government regulations. Well, guess who heard about it? This Spanish official heard about these missionaries who were having some trouble, and he remembered that one dinner he had. And so he used his influence to just clear the way, all, all, clear away all those restrictions, and uh, help that work go on. In fact, there is a church today in that province of Spain due in part to one meal. <laughs> one meal. I also heard the story of a high school basketball coach who was a Christian who invited one of his players one night over to his house. Uh, with his family to have dinner. And later on, that young man who, who spent that dinner with them said that one night in that home with his, 
Christian basketball coach was the turning point in his entire life. He said, because for the first time, I saw a family sit together and eat dinner together. I had never seen that. And I, he said that night, I want this in my life. This is what I want. And he, made it, he just made a goal and he committed himself to that being his, his life goal. One meal changed the trajectory of a person's life. Listen, highly effective Christians are hospitable because it reflects Christ. It makes a difference in the lives of people and it shows our love for, for, for others. Of course, we always encourage, you know, I just have to say this, we always encourage this be done safely and wisely. Be careful who you invite in your home. Amen. I understand that. But this really could be a great way to encourage other believers, to bring neighbors to Christ, to bring colleagues to the Lord. Man, open your, open your home. Let people sit around your table. And then Paul takes noticeable, he takes a noticeable turn now here, to how we behave with the people who are hostile to Christians. It was not easy being a Christian in Rome back then, and persecution was on the rise. Christians were not going to win any popularity contest, believe me. And in some cases, it was life-threatening to be a Christian. So what are the difference-making habits of highly effective Christians when people come against us? Well, here's what it says in verse 14, but verse number 9, and that is, Speak well of those who mistreat you. Speak well of those who mistreat you. Verse 14, Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Can you hear Paul echoing the commands of Jesus there? It's one of our most important duties and one of our most difficult duties. Persecute, the word persecute, literally means to pursue with hostility, to harass, to mistreat, to trouble. Paul is saying, listen, when somebody in your life just has it out for you, don't blast them, but bless them. Bless means to speak well of. Speak well of. Speak well to the person, and even harder, speak well about them. But that's not all. That's, that's difficult as it is right there. Amen. But as I was going over this verse, I realized that God took it from incredibly hard to impossible in, his, in the last phrase there. Bless and curse not. See, it might be bearable if I had to bless an enemy as long as I could go in private and curse them. Right. <laughs> That'd be nice. You know, it made me feel a lot better if I could say something nice to their face and then go curse them behind their back. Not good. But we can't even do that. We can't even do that. Some of you right now can think of several people who harass you, who mistreat you, who trouble you. Perhaps some of you can't think of anybody. Well, let me get you thinking here. If you never have any mistreatment, if you never, never have anybody harass you, maybe that's because you've shied away from being vocal about Christ. When we speak up for Christ, we will make some enemies. We just will. People will go on social media and make passive-aggressive statements about you. People will make themselves sound better in conversations and try to ruin your reputation. Family members and friends will tell you in no uncertain terms to stop preaching to me. Here's the question. What would blessing someone like that do? What would blessing them and not cursing them do? Well, it would flip the whole thing on its head. 
in our hearts and maybe in the entire situation. It would have a, a profound effect on them. I've seen it again and again. No one quite knows what to do with Christians. <laughs> we're, a weird, we're a weird breed. We're a weird blend of rigidness on certain issues, but kindness. We have strong beliefs that are immovable about morals and righteousness and God's word, but we're loving no matter how you treat us. And people don't know what to do with that. And this love of Christ eventually chips away at the hearts of enemies. Like Jesus said, you know, anybody can love a lovable person. Matthew 5, 46, Jesus said, For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? In other words, even the guys with no morals, like the tax collectors, even those guys can do that. It takes a person who has the love of Christ in them to bless a person that's mistreating them. I love what one pastor said. This is so good. If you have Christ living in you, you have an endless supply of love to give to even the people who hate you. What is impossible for us to do, Christ can do through us with this endless supply of love to give. An endless supply. This exact thing played out in the book of Acts when we see Stephen, the deacon, being stoned to death. And Paul standing by holding the coats and watching, watching this happening and assisting in the stoning of Stephen. Stephen prays this in his last words. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Augustine said the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. Many a persecutor has become a follower of the faith. He once sought to destroy it because he has seen how a Christian can forgive. Blessing our persecutor has tremendous power. Blessing them and not cursing them has tremendous power. And, and that is what a highly effective Christian does. Now on the same note of love, Paul tells us, number 10 here, to empathize with one another. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. This is all about empathy. Now long ago, Christostom, who was an early church father, he wrote this on this passage. He said, it requires more, listen to this, it requires more of a high Christian temper to rejoice with them that do rejoice than to weep with them that weep. For this, nature itself fulfills perfectly. And there is none so hard-hearted as not to weep over him that is in calamity. But the other requires a very noble soul. So as not only to keep from envying, but even to feel pleasure with the person who is in esteem. What he's saying is, it would take a pretty cruel person to not weep with somebody. We can weep with others a little more easily. If somebody's going through something, a loss of a loved one, even, even somebody you don't like, you could probably put your arm around them and, and weep with them and say, I'm so sorry. But... It's harder to rejoice with people who rejoice. See if you agree. You're at work, and the guy at work, you've, you've been waiting for a promotion, but the other guy at work gets the promotion. And so now it's your time to go congratulate him on the promotion. Uh, can you do that? Can you rejoice with those who rejoice? Can you genuinely be happy for him? Or when your neighbor gets a new car and you don't? See, rejoicing with people and and weeping with people truly are real manifestations of true Christian love. See, this is 
agape love here we're talking about, and it's basically uh, seen in this verse, Romans 12, 15. It is selflessness. Agape love is God's love, and it is selfless. And it is, it is empathy. Here's Pastor Luke's plain version of this verse. Listen. Stop with your self-focus for a minute and get in tune with the feelings of others around you. Stop with your self-focus for a minute and get in tune with the feelings of others around you. And just be there with people. Just be there with the people around you. You may have heard the old story about a farmer who had some puppies for sale. He made a little advertising sign and he was out there. And I'm going to read this to you. He made a sign advertising the pups and nailed it to a post on the edge of his yard. As he was nailing the sign to the post, he felt a tug on his overalls. He looked down to see a little boy with a big grin and something in his hand. Mister, he said, I want to buy one of your puppies. Well, said the farmer, these puppies come from fine parents and cost a good deal. The boy dropped his head for a moment, then looked back up at the farmer and said, I got 39 cents. Is that enough to take a look? <sighs> sure, the farmer said. With that, he whistled out, Dolly, here Dolly. Out from the doghouse and down the ramp, ramp ran Dolly with her with four little fur balls. The little boy's eyes danced with delight. Then out from the doghouse peeked another little ball. This one noticeably smaller. Down the ramp it slid and became, began hobbling in an unrewarded attempt to catch up with the others. The pup was clearly the runt of the litter. The little boy pressed his face to the fence, pointed to the runt, and cried out, I want that one. The farmer knelt down and said, Son, you don't want that puppy. He'll never be able to run and play with you the way you would like. With that, the boy reached down, slowly pulled up one leg of his trousers, showing the farmer a steel brace running down both sides of his leg, attached to a specially made shoe. Looking up at the farmer, he said, You see, sir, I don't run well myself, and that little pup will need someone who understands. People need someone who understands. People need someone who understands. All around us today, and all around us this week are people who need just somebody to understand. And listen, those who have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, those who understand justification and sanctification, those people should be the very ones who sit and weep with those who weep. And sit and or jump up and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We should have just this selfless, love that just pours out on others and thinks about others. These are the habits of highly effective Christians. These are the things that God says, I want, I want you to do. This is the, all your life. Do these little things. And you'll have a powerful life. Lord, we thank you. We, love you. we hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www. .thehomechurch.net From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.